Genesis 8, verse 1. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I am Bryant Bales. We want to welcome you today to our podcast where we're going through the Bible uh, ostensibly one chapter at a time. Last time we went through two chapters. This time actually we're going to go through three. Uh, considering what we're looking at, considering uh, what's going on in the Bible story at this time, uh, we have begun to speak about the flood. And the flood is a very massive, very uh, important event. And uh, it's interesting when we talk about it. We mentioned last uh, last episode that, that the flood, when we see it, it's it's prominent all throughout mythology, all throughout the world. And, and we want to discuss that. We want to talk about that specifically in Genesis chapters 7, 8, and 9 today. But before we do that, we want to uh, tell you that we certainly appreciate you listening and we invite you to have a discussion with us. We want to talk to you. We want to uh, we want to understand what you want. Uh, for example, out of this podcast, um, is there some sort of topic that you're wrestling with in your study? Is there something that you want to consider? Is there something you've listened uh, to us in an episode about, and and maybe you disagree? Uh, maybe you have some comments on something. We certainly welcome all that. Uh, our email is walking through the book at protonmail.com, and uh, we encourage you to email us there. And you never know, your topic may come up in a future episode of Walking Through the Book. We have, uh, we have ideas that we want to try to do maybe some topical episodes at some point, maybe some taking breaks with our textual stuff, and maybe do even panel discussions, uh, with some other fellows that we know that, uh, that are good Bible students that, uh, would be able to, to help us with those things. And so, um, so we encourage you to email us walking through the book at, protonmail.com and uh, hopefully uh, those things can be uh, good things for us to consider. It's important for us to study the Bible. That's what we're all about with walking through the book. We want to help you understand that studying through the Bible is not an intimidating thing. It's not something that should be scary. It's not something that should feel like a burden. This is the truth of God that's been revealed for mankind and we, we want to look at it. We want to appreciate it with you. And uh, certainly want to invite you along on our study today. Well, with nothing else, let's go into our reading for this uh, particular podcast. And we're going to go through and we're going to be looking at these uh, three chapters, starting with Genesis 7. Cherubim, the 
be reading out of the New King James translation, Genesis chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, Two by two they went into the ark to Noah, a male, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, And Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah two by two, of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, and all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth one hundred and fifty days. Chapter 8 Then God remembered Noah, and every living thing, and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out the raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for her sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her, and drew her into the ark to himself. 
and he waited another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, and Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days, and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. And it came to pass in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9 So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. 
These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood three hundred and fifty years. So all the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years, and he died. Okay, let's uh, get some of the speculation out of the way, <laughs> uh, at least some of it, because, um, you know, there are a few things that just come to my mind is, and you and I have talked about this before, Bryant, in our conversations, the possibility that uh, the pre-flood world may have been much more technologically advanced than, than we uh, could really think of, um, or at least what we would assume. Um I'm not saying that that's absolutely so, but, uh, but you, know, you think about, uh, what Noah did, um, and, and how much he accomplished. Now he had quite a long time to accomplish that. Right. Um, uh, I think from, from our standpoint, uh, what are we talking about? About, uh, about 120 years. Yeah. Something to that effect. So, so quite a while if we, if we take the text that way, um, but uh you know I, I don't know it's 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 possible uh, i don't know M- maybe he did wasn't just using uh very rudimentary tools to do all this uh, i'm i'm just not sure but uh but we know that the pre-flood uh world was a very wicked world but it also came up with a lot of advancements we talked about that uh in in the last episode i believe if not beforehand and so, uh, as, as we as we look at this, you know, uh, what's going on? The Lord is is telling him to come into the ark, and uh, we ended up chapter six with the understanding that Noah did according to all that God commanded him, uh, and and that included the preparing of the ark, the building of the ark. Which, by the way, I think we should recognize and help help others to understand that the way that the ark is typically pictured is probably not the way that it looked, right? Um, often it's pictured as a sort of a boat looking thing. It looks like more of a modern interpretation of a boat. Uh, but the problem with that is that wire boats made that way. They're made that way so that they, uh, are able to travel well 
and uh, actually get to a place easily. But uh, it's more that more likely that the Ark itself looked much more like a, a giant box, uh, because all really what it was about was uh, making sure that it was buoyant and making sure that it, that it floated. Um, what do you think, Brian? Yeah, yeah. It seems like the description would be pretty plain and box-like. <laughs> so. At any rate, what we see with the building of the Ark, uh, we see this multiple times. And this is one of the big things that uh, I want to recognize is that God continues in his instructions, continuing uh, in terms of not just the Ark, but in the filling of the Ark. Uh, he talks about, uh, you know, come in, come in with this Ark, all your household. I've seen that you're righteous before me in this generation. Uh, Noah is, is, as Hebrews tells us, knows, Noah is only one of eight. Who were saved in this and uh, the New Testament later on I think in first Peter mentions that as well so the fact that uh, he's not just describing what he's gonna build he's not just describing who comes in there he's describing what he's gonna bring with him and specifically you talk uh, we talked a little bit about this before the recording uh, concerning the clean animals and the unclean animals uh, we have to remember and understand that the, the author of Genesis is very likely Moses. And so Moses, if we read and understand the later books of uh, the first five books of, of the Old Testament, uh, sometimes called the Pentateuch, um, Moses would have known, obviously, who what clean and unclean was. This also tells us that since God is telling this to Noah, that Noah must have had some knowledge, some understanding of of what uh, animals at that time were clean and uh, and unclean for them at that time. And so he says he's going to cause it to rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights. Now, let's make sure that we understand what's going on here. People say, "Well, Noah Noah was in the ark forty days and forty nights." Not necessarily. <laughs> and in fact, we're going to see later on that. Uh, that we're going to see it's actually much more that the waters prevail on the earth. So it just, it, it's not that it flooded for 40 days and 40 nights. It's uh it's a matter that it, uh, it flooded far longer than that. The, the water was there for quite a long time, it seems. And again, even though all of these instructions were, were being handed down and they seem very exact. They seem very finite. That seems like there's just not a whole lot of wiggle room here, right? In the way that Noah fulfills these, we see in verse five of chapter seven, Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. I think it's a pretty massive statement. The sense that Noah, there's no sense where he tries to bargain with God and try to work out something else that may be a little bit easier to do. Uh, and, and there's no uh, point where we see that Noah deviates from the commands that God has, has given. And so that tells us something because God looks at him as someone who is righteous, someone who in his grace and mercy, he looks out at and, and appreciates. Uh, and so Noah is one of these uh, initial examples where we can see very, very sterling example that this is the kind of person that God wants. Yeah, it's interesting in seven verse one, you know, God testifies to Noah over and over again. Noah doesn't testify to himself mm. in those qualities, except that he obeys the word of the Lord. And I just think it's interesting. Like I think about Genesis chapter one, actually, uh, I think it's verse three. 
God said, let there be light. There was light. God saw the light that it was good. And maybe that even sets up a theme in Genesis that God recognizes the light, you know, and he's specifically looking at the light within us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's it is when God looked at the earth and this time he saw that what was in man, I mean, he was looking, everybody looks the same, right? But God Mm -hmm. divided and discerned what was in man was darkness. And yet what was in Noah was light. Mm -hmm. And of course, where did that light come from in Genesis one, but from his word. And so, you know, I think the, the case can be made that Noah was righteous because he had the word of God abiding in him and it illuminated his inner person and an evidence of that. That's a timeless connection to those of faith we see through every generation is when God spoke, he acted because the word is living and active. And so when God spoke him to do something living and active, Noah, in a very active way, he did it. Mm hmm. Now let me let me throw in a little bit more speculation here, but it's for a particular purpose based on what we're talking about. Um, it's theorized by some that uh, there was no rain on the earth until the flood. Now, you, sometimes you know, the, the reason for that is that you see in earlier on in the book when you look at uh, Genesis two five. Uh, God had not caused it to rain. There was no man to till the ground. A mist came up to water the plants, it seems. And uh, so uh, some people assume from that that it hadn't rained up until then. This comes into a little bit of creationism science, you might say. We're talking about the water canopy theory, the thought that there once was a layer of water up in the atmosphere above the earth. Um, You know, I, I don't mean to get deep into that. But I do want to make this point. If that was the case, that, that it had not rained before this time, uh, how silly might Noah have seemed to other people building this ark? You know, it's like, what in the world are you doing that about? Uh, you know, what's your point in doing that? Uh, he may have been ridiculed or mocked in this. We don't have anything in the text about that. Uh, but I think that is one thing to keep, to keep in mind is that if that, if that's the case, then, you know, Noah was faithful to God throughout all that, uh, in spite of that. Um, we do know that Jesus, for example, on the cross was jeered. Uh, he was made fun of. Uh, we know that, uh, that often people tried to push back the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, by making fun of it on the day of Pentecost in Acts two, uh, you know, people are seeing the great things happening with the apostles. They're speaking in tongues. Everybody's hearing the gospel in their own language, and some of them sort of scoff at it and say, "Well, you know, they're they're drunk." And so we we see that that's a possibility. But uh, again, I don't want to go deep into that. But I just feel like that's interesting that uh, that Noah is completely faithful to the Lord's commands and his instructions. And speaking of that, something that actually just now crossed my mind, isn't it fascinating how orderly and structured all of this is? Mm -hmm. It's not just the ark, but it's like God in Genesis chapter six said, okay, 120 years and then man will be cut off. And then in chapter seven, you have all these very specific dates and timeframes and like, okay, Noah, seven days, seven days, seven days. You know, it's like everything... You'd think a flood to destroy the earth would just be absolute chaos, but actually it's all very ordered. It's all very structured and it's all very purposed. 
mm-hmm. and everything is like very exactly timed out. It's just, to me, that's very fascinating. And that you see that through the word, just how structured and orderly God is. Just to throw out a couple examples, the tabernacle mm-hmm. and the temple, the priestly services, very structured, very orderly, the sacrificial system. But even the church in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 when it's talking about assemblies and using what God has given us to serve each other, you just see this constant characteristic that things that could be very chaotic with God are very controlled, very structured, and just very interesting to see that here. Yeah, in First Corinthians 14, I mean, he specifically says, let everything be done in order. So there's this right, sense right. that we have a God of order. Um, he set up nature in an orderly manner. But uh, yeah, like over and over throughout this reading, you've got the sense that, you know, uh, verse 11 in uh, of chapter s- 7 in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month the 17th day of the month you know these this mm-hmm. very precise stuff and uh, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I do want to stress from that point we're going to see this all throughout scripture especially we see it I think we see it very generously in the gospel of Luke and in Acts uh, we've got this sense of like this is the time this happened when this king was reigning at this time in this province in this you know this, this very exact quality and that tells us that the that tells us that the bible is not a fantasy book it's not a fairy story it's not this story mm-hmm. that says a long time ago in a kingdom far far away um and uh you know star wars fans might think galaxy but uh but but it's not about that it's not this fantastical myth and that's where people get it wrong. They call the Bible myth, and uh, it's it's not. It's it's something that verif- that 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 is trying to be stressed upon us that these are verifiable things. And we've mentioned as well, Bryant, on on this podcast. We mentioned last time that the flood is something that obviously affected the entire world. In every mm-hmm. major religion all throughout the world, there's a flood mythology. Um, now there are different crazy stories that surround those mythologies and in, in, in all those uh, different religions. But the fact that it's there, the fact that it's, it's understood and seen, we mentioned as well, the, the sediment um, that some people think of as rock layers. Um, I mean, they are rock layers, but how do they get there? Do they get there over uh, thousands and millions of years? Or was it a quick uh, rush uh, into the surface of the earth. Obviously, if we're going to take the Bible for what it says, then we see the flood coming from actually multiple places. Uh, you know, the, 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 it's said here when we get into the thought of the, of the flood that we see that the waters increase, lift up the ark, and we see that uh, in verse, verse 11, the fountains of the great deep were broken up. And the windows of heaven were open, so it was coming from below and and also coming from above. Uh, so it wasn't just something that was it was just rain; it was something that was really uh, intended to bring this about very, uh, very um, con- not conveniently is the wrong word, <laughs> but but very uh, very applicable to God's purpose and and what He was intending to do here. Yeah, and something on that, too, that I think is interesting, uh, verse 2 of chapter 8, it says, The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. I could be looking too much into this and getting this wrong, but it seems like it's separating out the windows of the heavens and the rain being two different things. Mm -hmm. 
And the windows of heaven being opened, I mean, it almost sounds like, you know, almost like a, a giant door and just water is just coming out, almost like a waterfall. Mm-hmm. You know, so the way I picture this, and again, like, I could be wrong about this. I picture water from the depths of the oceans, literally like a geyser, like smashing upward, Mm -hmm. but then also water from above smashing downward like a waterfall. Mm -hmm. And that just, that would literally obliterate everything completely. Like if they had some great technology or some, I mean, they lived like 900 years. That's a long time to like think and accomplish things, you know, but you know, water from below and from above literally smashing together everything would be obliterated yeah. like it's just it would be catastrophic you know i don't get the picture of like a small like you know kind of slowly builds up but the initial floodwaters now it slowly decreased right but the initial floodwaters it seems like the image it's it just decimated everything fast yeah. you know yeah and if it's if it's that amount of where i mean literally you've got the the surface the land the rocks of the earth being broken up by this i mean you know mm-hmm. It just, I don't know. That, that, again, we're, we're, we're feeding into that speculation thing there. That, that, and that's fine as long as it's healthy because we're going back to the text. But um, if that's the way that God decided to do it, then, uh, you know, how th- that would be, again, working particularly uh, exact toward his purpose. What's he trying to do? Well, he intends to uh, uh, make sure that all upon the earth is going to be destroyed. Um, and specifically we see in verse 22 of chapter seven, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. And so what does that leave? I think that leaves the, the sea creatures, the, the, whatever, you know, whatever was in the sea that must've survived at least for the most part. Um, and, uh, but but overall that was his that was his focus did did god want to do this of course not and i think we've already uh mentioned that we talked about that last uh last time is that this is not you know god's purpose is not to destroy man here his purpose is to maintain his holiness and maintain his justice because the wickedness was so great and that wickedness had to be dealt with and did god create that wickedness not at all not at all it's the absence of God. It's the absence of him. And uh, Bryant, you brought up light and dark. It's the absence of that light that creates that darkness. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and we see that continuing on throughout all the word. It's interesting because you could almost think about it like everything that was connected to God's spoken word survived. Mm-hmm. So the ark was completely constructed almost like its measurements by the word of God. Noah was righteous, you know, and having his word abiding in him and Noah's family being, you know, closely connected to him. It's like everything connected to God's word survived mm-hmm. and everything disconnected from his word perished. You know, and I think there's a, a broad principle in that, that extends like a deep thread connecting the whole Bible together. I think about Isaiah when Isaiah said, all flesh is grass, you know, it's like the flower of the field, you but blow on it and it fades away, but it's the word of God that endures forever. And I think that principle is in here. Absolutely. You know, one, one thing as we continue to, to think about this, chapter, chapter eight, verse one, I, I, I grabbed that as the central verse, the central core verse of this episode. 
because I think it's impressive. It's very important that we consider that God remembered Noah. Um, what does that mean? Uh, the, the implication to me is that God could have just left Noah floating on the water for the rest of his life. And, you know, that really wouldn't have been any real life. Uh, it wouldn't have even approached what, what God intended for life. And so he remembered Noah, not just Noah, but every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. So God cares about the animals to some degree. Just because, for example, you know, God's going to say later on that the fear of the animals is against you. And, you know, he's, he told Adam, you have, you're to have dominion over the animals. Just because that is so doesn't mean that the animals are just useless fodder that, you know, we're, we're to just toss to the side. So he remembered them and we see that God made a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. So he intended this. He intended the sense, you know, it wasn't just that the flood was going to come down automatically. God was in control of it. Even in spite of all that he was doing, managing this flood and all these uh, huge things that were, I think, arguably, we could say was literally reforming and reshaping the earth. Uh, you know, this is something that carries out through the entirety of Scripture, even though God is doing all these massive, great things on this big plane, he remembers us. He remembers uh, all of us. And we see that all, you know, again, we mentioned already the waters receding continually from the earth. And this goes on. Uh, this is 150 days that this continues, uh, that, that the waters prevail on the earth. And we see in verse 4 that the ark ended up landing and resting on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continue to decrease. And uh, what we see is we're seeing this generally. Now we're going to go back and we're going to see maybe a closer viewpoint, a closer look at what happens after that 40 days. Remember, the 40 days we're talking about is the time where it rained, is the time where all of this happened. Well, that stopped at some point. And so we're going to see in, in, in verse 6 of chapter 8 that uh, Noah opens the window of the ark and he sends out the raven and the dove. Well, it's just interesting that the raven, raven just left and didn't come back. Oh, yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like well, well, all right. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, did you have anything on the remembering part? Any God remembering? Did you have anything to add there? Oh, man. Yeah. 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 That's so that's significant. Asking. You know, verse 18 of chapter yeah, chapter 6, verse 18, you know, he says, I will establish my covenant with you. Man, that's like the theme of the book of Psalms, yep. the theme of the yep. Bible. Yep. You know, it's like, can you count on God remembering? Mm. You know, that's one of God's greatest attributes. He humbles himself to remember the unworthy, mm. you know, the insignificant, even when there's judgment. Mm -hmm. So in the book of the Psalms, in the third book of the Psalms, uh, which is Psalm 73 through 89, uh, 89 is specifically, it's a very depressing series of Psalms, but it's actually very encouraging because the Psalmists are in a place of God's judgment because of the wicked, just like Noah. And they're just waiting. They're waiting. It looks hopeless. And it's like, how can this possibly, how can we reconcile this? Like God has made all these covenantal promises with us, but everything is a disaster. Mm -hmm. And this is the principle is they're counting on the fact that they know that one of God's eternal attributes is he remembers those of his covenant. Mm -hmm. He does not forget even in judgments and the pouring out of his wrath. 
you know, and, and we count on that too today. You know, God remembers us when, when we're in the place of his covenant and we're, we're really striving to just wait on him and, and serve him. He does not forget. And I, I just really think that's such an incredible principle to see here and to see constant in the word. Absolutely. You know, the, the fact that he remembers us throughout all that, um, and even when we are so weak and, you know, you, you think about Noah's family is righteous uh, overall, but, you know, we're about to see in chapter nine an issue where we see part of his family is not just not there, not where they should be. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong there. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But uh, but even in spite of that, you know, ha- w- would it have been a hard thing to get onto that ark knowing that? The life that you had, the the existence that you had, whatever that was, is going to be gone forever. You're never going to be able to go back. And uh, and we, we we face times like that in our life, right? Uh, you're in high school. You feel like you know you've got a group of friends, and you feel like, well, this can this can continue on, and we're always going to be friends and things like that. Well, that's not that's not necessarily the case. <laughs> you you may continue to be friends, but you may not. And things, things may change and you get to a point in your life where you start to realize that, you know, it's never going to be like it was, it's never going to be like it was. I know that's a, maybe a, a more of a shallow example of what I'm talking about here, but getting onto that arc and saying, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to come about from this, but I trust in God and uh, that, I think that also encapsulates Moses's faith too, because there's a point in Exodus where Moses tells Pharaoh, you know, we have to have, you know, we're, we need to leave. And he's saying, okay, you can leave, uh, but just keep your, keep your oxen and you keep your sheep here. And Moses says, no, we need to take all those with us. We're taking everything. And we don't even know what's going to happen in the future. Basically, is that I'm paraphrasing what Moses says there. We don't even know what's going to happen or how we're going to serve God out there. But, but we need to go. And so, you know, faith demands something that you don't know all of it, but you, you trust in God. You, you know him. You have this relationship with him to say that he's going to remember me. He's going to take care of me, even though I don't know what's going to happen immediately in the future. So as we see that Noah continues to, you know, we see the general in verses one through five of chapter eight, the general statement that, you know, the floods are going to go back, the waters are going to recede. And then we see in verse six, again, we, we go back to the end of the 40 days of the flood. Noah opens the window. He's out there. They're floating in the water. He sends out this raven. And he also sends out a dove. As you mentioned, the raven never comes back. Raven, I don't know exactly what happened to him. Uh, maybe he was able to fly a little bit farther than the dove. I, you know, I don't know. But the the dove keeps coming back. And uh, we see the second time the dove comes back, uh, there's a olive leaf in her mouth. Interesting, right? And on multiple levels, uh, what's Jesus mm-hmm. doing when he is proclaiming his woe upon Jerusalem later on? Uh, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, uh, and, 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 you know, ultimately the olive tree, olive branch, you know, pretty, pretty big things, uh, pretty big symbols right. in scripture. Um, 
Noah knew at that point, of course, that the waters had receded, so he sends out the dove again, and the dove, dove, dove doesn't come back then. Again, we have this exactness in verse 13 of chapter 8. The 601st year, the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up. Noah removed the covering of the ark, and the surface of the ground was dry. So the ark rested. It's resting there on Ararat, and uh, we see the earth was dried there. Interesting to me. Noah doesn't take it upon himself to leave the ark until God tells him to go. I don't know if that means that they had been on the ark so long already that uh, that they had made sort of a home of it. I mean, you think in, you know, 150 days, that's, that's like about half a year, right? And so... Yeah, and and so uh, maybe they're reluctant to go. Maybe that's, you know, or maybe he's simply waiting. Maybe he's simply waiting to say, you know, I'm going to wait until God tells me to leave. I just, I just appreciate that, that he, there's this sense where he, he, you know, God tells him to go out of the ark and to bring all of them out and to, to, to leave the ark and go back out onto land. Um, have you ever, uh, Bryant, have you ever heard of like sensory deprivation tanks? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. So it's this it's this concept where you go in and you're you're floating in this water that's been specially prepared, uh, I think with salt or something like that, to let you float a lot easier. And you go in there and it's complete darkness. It's complete. You know, you, it, it you get to the point supposedly where you're not seeing anything, you're not feeling anything, you're just floating there. Um. And, you know, I've seen video of people coming out of that, and it's almost like they have to reintegrate themselves into normal, you know, sense of life again. And uh, going through this flood, I mean, uh, it must have been a huge thing. And then to come back out and to start to have some sort of the life that God wants them to have um, must have been a big moment, I, I would think. I was, I was just going to say, it's, it's interesting how much patience Noah has. Like he didn't jump out the window into the water, you know, or like, mm-hmm. you know, jump out and swim around looking for land. Like he just kept waiting. And then, you know, even when the olive branch was plucked, he still waited, you know, like it's just an incredible amount of patience in that he wasn't growing like bitter and all that quiet time in the ark didn't result in him like, questioning God's justice and getting angry and, you know, regretting, regretting serving God and making that arc, you know, and you just, you just really see Noah's character is so much proven in his faith in all of this. What's the first thing he does? Uh, verse 20 of chapter, mm. chapter eight, he builds an altar. Yeah. And he takes of the clean animals. And again, you know, we talked about, you know, why does he talk about twos in chapter six, but then he talks about, uh, seven each in verses two and three of chapter seven um, could be that part of that was that God wanted to make it to where it would be possible for him to make offerings uh, for, for Noah to make offerings once he once he comes back. So he's thankful to God for seeing them through this. He he offers these burnt offerings on the altar. We see the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Again, looking at this in a big picture standpoint, uh, we know that it's not necessarily the uh, the sacrifice itself, but it was the it was the faithfulness that Noah had, the thankfulness that Noah had, 
And the Lord says in his heart, I'm not going to curse the ground for man's sake, uh, never again. So what is that talking about? What does that look back to? You know, when did when did he curse the ground? Now, would that be like Genesis 3? Yeah, I, I think that reaches back to that, that, you know, cursed is the ground for your sake. That's Genesis right. 317. And then uh, when we talked about uh, Lamech's words concerning Noah, in uh, chapter 5, verse 29, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. So the idea that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, I'm going to make it where, where you can actually benefit from the land. You're going to work the land again. You know, it's going to be easier. I, I'm not sure that God necessarily made it where it's exactly like it was with Eden. But uh, but I do get the sense that that this is when we come back to the sense that that you're actually able to uh, to farm and to produce. And that's what Noah begins to do in chapter nine. So in verse 21, you know, it's, it's interesting that the Lord said this to himself in his own heart. I think that's a really, really interesting. Uh, what would you call it? In, like revelation or you know, insight, you know, that the narrator, God is inspiring Moses, you know, narrating through this to look into his own heart. Mm-hmm. Noah didn't hear this covenant. And That's true. I would yeah. think that maybe even the heavenly host didn't hear like God. It's kind of like if I say something in my heart, nobody else knows. And I just think that's so mm-hmm. interesting. And I think it shows how grieved God was by judgment. I think a misunderstanding that people have is that God enjoys judgment. And that's just so not true. Right. You know, God, he waits until it's unbearable to do it. And even when he does it, it's unbearable that he had to do it. You know, I think you can see that when he yeah. says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sakes. And it's like, I know that everything in their heart is evil. I don't care. I cannot do this again. You know, you just, you can almost like hear the emotion just the pain in his heart as he says this, that I just can't bear to do this ever again. I will make sure this doesn't happen again. And that's, that's just so powerful, I think. Wow, yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the sense that he, he's doing this in spite, you know, although the mm-hmm. imagination mm-hmm. of man's heart is evil from his youth. I, I think, you know, what we can pull from that is that maybe it's not as bad as it was before. But he is seeing that maybe there are some seeds there that that are going to continue on, mm-hmm. um, you know, as we're going to see in chapter nine with Ham's family. And, you know, we see the the seasons talked about the fact that things are going to be normal. All these things are not going to cease. They're not going to stop. Um, and, and, you know, again, God's not proclaiming that he's 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 restating that to himself. Um and we have the start of a new promise here that he's not going to destroy man again. And then in chapter nine, we see that promise being put forward. And so chapter nine, verse one, he blessed Noah and his sons, uh, the same command that's given to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. You're st- we're starting again. We're back to that point where we are repopulating. And we see that uh, that the fear of you is going to be on every beast. And we see that even today, you know, um, uh, it's very important, for example, with animals 
to maintain that fear. If you want to, uh, if you want to survive with them, if you encounter a bear out in the forest, you better make sure that you're able to intimidate it, especially if it's a black bear. Uh, grizzly bears, nah, probably just try to get out, <laughs> get away as best you can. But, you know, we got a lot of black bears here in Mississippi. And when, uh, when you come across a black bear, you just want to basically say, hey, you get out of here, you know, kind of deal and be, you know, be dominant about this. And so God allowed that. God brought that about. And he says, they're given into your hand. Again, doesn't mean that they're useless. It doesn't mean that they're going to be for our amusement or anything like that necessarily. Uh, it doesn't mean we mistreat them. It means they're tools. It's, it, it, they're useful for us. And so verse three, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Uh, all things, even as the green herbs, and but he places a, con uh, a condition here in verse four as well. You shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. Surely your lifeblood for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I'll require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I'll require the life of man. And he talks about, you know, he begins to talk about the fact that you don't eat that flesh with its blood. Um, we know and understand today that that's not something that's useful for us. It's not something that's that's beneficial medically, and it's something that's actually going to be bad for us the more that we take that in. And so here we see that Moses knows about this way back when he was writing this, and Noah knew about it before then. Um, a lot of things uh, in ancient religions talked about the fact that you needed to kill uh, go out there and kill an animal, and if you were to drink its blood, you would gain its power and things like that. Well, that's not so in the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about that in that in that way. And uh, so again, uh, what what fits more in terms of what we know about about life and biology today? But he says, for your lifeblood, the fact that uh, if if someone sheds man's blood. By man, this blood shall be shed, verse 6. And why is that? You know, if I kill somebody, what's the problem? Well, that person I killed is made in the image of God. And and so there's that initial point here. I mean, you, you look at what's going on here, and Bryant, I, I'm maybe stretching here, but I see some seeds of of the Ten Commandments here that are given to, to, to Moses and to the Israelites. Yeah, it's almost like, God is revealing universal things, you know, because it's almost like the clean and unclean wasn't really focused on. It was just kind of like as a matter of fact, but this is focused on. And I think that's interesting. You know, it's almost like there's universal things here being being brought out progressively, which maybe they gets back to God's structure and order, you know, that we were talking about earlier. You know, I don't think there's a place before this where God defines the importance of lifeblood and blood. You know, he mm -hmm. talks about like, you know, Cain killing Abel, you know, but it didn't go into this much detail with like how important blood is, you know. So I just think that's kind of interesting, too, that God waits until right now after the flood to give this insight into the importance of blood. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you may not it, it may not be something that uh, that they would immediately grab onto. But he makes it clear. Uh, 
how that's going to be done. And some of that's, you know, blood is another strain that becomes really useful, really interesting, very important for us to recognize as we go through the Bible. Uh, blood is important. There's something important about that. Um, and he mentions that in terms of the lifeblood. In fact, later on, when, when God's talk, telling the Israelites that you shouldn't eat blood, the reason is because blood is life. You know, blood is that source of life within, within man. Um, bloodletting, uh, on the other hand, uh, is a technique, a, a medical technique that was in use till about, you know, 150 years ago. And it was thought that if you're sick, you need to get the bad blood out. You got to get the bad things out. And so you're going to bleed. But we know better than that today. We know that actually you need that blood to live. And sometimes we need more blood to live. Uh, so at any rate, uh, just important things for us to consider about the text. So God in, uh, in verses, uh, I, I would say, in ver the, the latter verses of chapter 9, and verses 8 through 17 specifically, he vocalizes this covenant that he made, uh, that he talked to, a, basically considered in his heart at the latter part of chapter 8. He, he, he explains it to him. He says in verse 9, I'll establish my covenant with you, with your descendants after you, and every living creature. And he says in verse 11, I'm not going to uh, cut flesh off by the waters of the flood. I'm not going to stop this. I'm not going to kill you with a flood. Uh, there's not going to be a flood to destroy the earth anymore. And he says, here's the sign. Here's how I'm going to prove it. He says in verse 13, I set my rainbow in the cloud. It's going to be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring a cloud of the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud I'll remember my covenant. Again, that remembering there. Remembering that God remembers his covenants. He remembers what he what he agrees to. And a covenant, by the way, I think we need to recognize when we talk about covenant, we're not just talking about a contract that God drew up and said, okay, you know, sign on the dotted line kind of deal. A covenant, just a basic working definition, a covenant is an agreement uh, maintained ultimately through the faith of each adherent to that covenant. And that includes a promise concerning that covenant. And so, you know, this is, this is much more than just a simple contractual agreement. This is something that God is saying, Hey, we're in this relationship together. We, we have, we're, we're together in this, and this is what I'm going to do. And this is what I'm expecting from you. Um, but, but there's a deeper aspect to it is that, you know, in any human contract, what can happen? Well, either I can fail to honor that contract or the other person I'm making this agreement with can fail to honor that contract. And so there's an element of risk for both involved. But you know what? In a covenant with God, the only risk ultimately is up to him. You know, he, he's the one that's putting his neck out, that's stretching out to us, that's offering out to us and say, hey, I want to be with you. I want you to be a part of me. Because the thing is, he's not going to fail. He's not going to fail in his covenant. He's not going to fail in in fulfilling his promises. He never does. And so here's here we see really the beginning and the start of those things. I know we've seen sort of parts of it before. 
but we're going to see more and more beauty as time goes on as to as to the 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 fact that God maintains his covenant he remembers it and he brings it about and so that's that's just a wonderful thing we can see yeah it's interesting how much grace is in the covenant and how little is required from Noah mm. God is basically like hey I'm giving you the world giving you all its abundance go ahead and just be fruitful multiply you know you have yourself a giant family you know just have a good time with with the world now as it is and then god says what i'll do is i'm going to make sure that the world's never destroyed like this again i'm going to give you the rainbow as confirmation of that you know and it's just like there's so much giving and grace involved in this covenant and all he says to noah on his part all noah has to do just don't drink or eat blood and don't murder anybody like man, that's basic. Like and, and multiply. basically, like nothing's required. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, you know, God's giving him so much grace and requiring so little of Noah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's like what an incredible covenant. Yeah, yeah, and and it seems like Noah wants to wants to continue in this because you know we see the sons in in verse eighteen there and and Ham specifically said Ham is the father of Canaan and. Uh, uh, you mentioned before our recording, that's kind of an interesting point because we see this association being put up here and we see Canaan being put forward in this light. Uh, it would seem to me, to me that the term Canaan uh, might be related back to this. Uh, we're seeing the start of all life as we know it today. Because remember, the, the world as it was before the flood is gone. And now we have to start anew. And so in verse 19, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Again, we could try to uh, explain things out and say, well, maybe there were survivors in other places and things like that. Well, you can say that, but the Bible says something different. The Bible tells us that everything was killed. And from only these three men came the whole population of the earth over time. In verse 20, Noah begins to be a farmer. He plants a vineyard. Uh, it seems to be good things happening. But even in this blessing, there's a problem. Hmm. He takes this blessing and uses it in a bad way. Drinks of the wine and becomes drunk. Hmm. Became uncovered in his tent. Uh, it just seems like some strange silliness that's going on here. I think, I think that's what we could call it. Uh, it's a, it's a weird situation and this is not going to be the last weird situation that we find, uh, for example, in the book of Genesis. And it's definitely not going to be the last weird situation we find in the Bible. Um, and I'll tell you, I don't have really a whole lot on this except that obviously something about what Ham did was not good. It says he saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers outside. Well, maybe uh, in seeing that nakedness, there was a bad thing going on. Or uh, maybe in not helping him to deal with that. Because we see that, uh, that the term in verse 23, but, or at least that's the way it's translated in uh, New King James, but Shem and Japheth took a garment. So it's almost like a contrast of saying, you know, Ham did this, but Shem and Japheth did this. And so they lay this cloak on their shoulders and they go backward and cover the nakedness of their father. They don't see their father's nakedness. And 
Noah awakes, you know, he, he kind of comes to himself later on and understands what happened in terms of, of Ham that he had seen his nakedness. Now, whose fault is this? <laughs> we could moralize uh, things all day, but let's understand that the covenant that Noah and his family were under is not the covenant that we're under today. Uh, in the same sense that the covenant that God made with the Israelites was not is not the same covenant that we're under today. And so who are we to go back and say, well, really, this is Noah's fault as, as to what's going on? Yeah, maybe so. But at the end of the day, let's just take the, what the text says uh, as as God shows us. And Noah begins to proclaim a prophecy concerning uh, Canaan, Ham's son. I don't know why Canaan is specifically singled out here, but cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brethren. And we see that Canaan, that line, that whole uh, path is going to be a path that's going to bring about some nations that are actually going to be uh, enemies of Israel down the line. And uh, we see the beginning of, uh, of these these strains uh blessed be the lord the god of shem may canaan be his servant specifically we see that shem's line continues on in some ways shem shem's line is almost a replacement for the line of seth we talked about the, the lines of seth and cain before the flood and seth was the righteous line that w- began to serve god and cain was the other line that that uh increased in wickedness and got worse and worse and worse and so we see this is really the strains that, that they're going to work out throughout the, the look of the world, uh, throughout the course of, of all the rest of existence. So Noah lived uh, 350 years after the flood. Interesting, after the flood, he, uh, you know, 350 versus 150 days uh, in, in, you know, in the ark. It's an interesting thing to see there. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So he lived quite a long time. But we're going to see in the future, uh, concerning in the, in the next few chapters, the furtherance of these things. So you got anything on any of that, Bryant? I know I, know I took a lot of the time there. Well, just a couple of simple things. I think it's a common principle that the glory of the grace that we receive from God's covenant and faithfulness, we take that grace and turn it into an opportunity for the flesh. And that is as true as what we see through the rest of the scripture as what we see today. You know, God gives astonishing grace, requires so little in return. And what do we do with that? We turn it into an opportunity of the flesh. Um, Another thing is in chapter three, verse 21, I think the question is who imitated God? God in chapter three, verse 21, saw the nakedness of Adam and Eve and he clothed them himself. You need to think how much more reverence and respect toward a father should a child have. And yet Ham walked away doing nothing. And so that shows even the principle of nakedness in terms of being naked without being clothed with Christ think something that I need to think more about is when I see someone's nakedness being without Christ, do I act on that or do I 
allow them to stay in that condition? You know, who, who's acting more like God in this? Um, Uh, On that point, uh, I just want to mention as well, you know, if we want to try to say that Noah was just the one completely at fault here, he should have, he should have uh, not gotten drunk. Well, uh, (laughs) we're early on enough in man's history that, you know, who's, who's to say that Noah didn't know that's what would happen. You know, uh, may, maybe the wine was a lot stronger than he considered it, you know, thought it might be. Um, but, of course, later on in the Bible, we're going to see warnings about wine and strong wine and strong drink and how it impairs judgment. And it gets in the way of us properly functioning and strong, strong warnings uh, against that. But anyway, I just wanted to mention that point. Yeah. Last thing is nine verse one. God bless Noah. And God specifically made the covenant with Noah. Yet Noah became a stumbling block that resulted in a permanent separation of nations mm. of who is blessed and who is cursed. And doesn't that describe Jesus? Jesus became a stumbling block and he became a curse when he was hung on the tree, even though he did not sin. And that resulted in a permanent separation of nations, ultimately of God's spiritual nation and the nations of the world. And so it's interesting you see those things that the one that is blessed is the one who becomes the stumbling block and that results in a permanent degree of separation that can't be undone. You know, because after this, like, none of these things could be undone after this. You know, Jesus came from Shem. Uh, so Shem Shem is the, the blessed nation and Canaan, you know, all sorts of wicked nations came from Canaan. Right. So it's kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah, and you have the term in, we're going to see in chapter 10, verse 18, the term the Canaanites is already, you know, being used. The families of the Canaanites. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, again, the region that they're going to inherit that is going to be promised to Abraham is called Canaan. And uh, I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's just a coincidence. So let's talk briefly about some application here. I know we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot in the text. We've covered a lot in our particular <clears throat> considerations of the text. What are some things that, uh, Bryant, you think we could pull out of this, think about with our lives? I think one of the things is just appreciating what seems to be insignificant in our choices, you know, those things have such substance and value, both in one direction or the other. You know, Noah, because God's word was abiding in him, he obeyed God and the whole earth was preserved through him doing that, even though building an ark, you know, isn't necessarily something simple. Um, you know, and then Ham saw his father's nakedness and that resulted in his descendants being cursed, you know, from that. And it seems like that's not just a principle of um, the fact that they were cursed, but the influence of Ham was just seemingly very, very wicked. And just nations from that point on were very wicked. And those nations are the nations that even influenced Israel 
the physical nation to sin and to apostasy as well. You know, so there's just all sorts of decisions that are made that are hard to value, but it's like God showing this to show us like, be responsible, slow down and see the value of abiding in the choices that God wants us to make and recognize the true substance of those choices in comparison to the curses that are involved when we don't see the grace of God in its right perspective. So I just think, I think that's a, a good perspective to take from this. Absolutely. Maybe in a more general sense, we understand that you know, God's judgments matter. God's, God carries out his judgments. Mm. He doesn't just say something and not right. bring it about. Yeah. And uh, in the devastation right. of the flood, we can, we can understand. I mean, really, you think about it, the things that we see on the news you know, when, when we look and see, I think if you, uh, what was it, a few years ago in Japan, they had uh, some serious floods, some, some typhoons that went through over there. Um, some of those things that we see, if, if you consider how the flood is being described, those things that we see today are just minuscule in comparison. I mean, you can't even imagine. It's, it's, it's hard to even imagine how serious this must have been. And... Uh, so uh, God carries out his judgments and it's important for us to know that that I want to be on God's side. I want to be part of his covenant, not out of fear, not out of saying, well, if I don't do this, God's going to destroy me uh, out of a sense that God's right and God's righteous and I want to do the right thing. And I know that this other way is not the way to go. No, no one knew that. No one knew that the wickedness around him was not the way to go. He knew who God was. He had an understanding of who God was. And there's no doubt. You think about this 120 years. You think it's possible that Noah just built the ark and didn't say a word to anybody? I think, you know, Noah's called in the New Testament a preacher of righteousness. And. I, I'd be hard pressed to say that he didn't say something to people while he was doing that. Now, maybe he didn't. Maybe just the fact that he, the fact that he built the ark and the fact that he went on the ark, maybe that was preaching enough. But, uh, but it's very important for us to learn from Noah's example that, you know, we, we see this coming destruction. And I think, uh, from, a, from a perspective of a Christian, you know, what sense does it make for us to know that there's going to come a day when judgment is going to be pronounced on everybody. And those who are not faithful to God are going to spend an eternity in hell with the devil and his angels. Uh, what sense does it make for us to know that and not impress upon everyone that we can the importance of that? And the fact that there is a way out, there is salvation, there is a way to be saved from this. And it involves the same thing that Noah did, having a relationship with God and having the willingness to uh, give yourself and submit yourself to his will, submit yourself to his grace and appreciate all those things that he wants to bring about for us, all these good promises that he wants to fulfill in our lives. Um, why not share that? Why not, why not impress that on others? And that's, that's why, <laughs> that's why we're doing this podcast. So very good thoughts. Yeah. I think one last thing, you know, first Peter three, 21 through 22, uh, where Peter compares the flood to baptism, 
you know, and I think one application to that is what did the water destroy? Destroyed all the wickedness that was in the world and preserved Noah who connected himself with God in faith. You know, so that that's comparison is made that yes, the water in a sense did save Noah because he could have built that ark. And yet if the water never came, there would be no salvation. So the ark preserved Noah through that water, but what saved Noah from that wickedness was the water that brought judgment on the wicked. And that's, that's baptism where it says that, uh, the waters in the flood were an anti-type of mm-hmm. baptism, which now saves us. And so, you know, the, the flood and, and what the flood accomplished really validates the necessity of baptism and, and the fact that it is baptism and what God does in that, in that act of obedience and faith, what God does spiritually in destroying wickedness entirely, completely, uh, destructively. Um, that that is salvation. We're thankful again for you taking the time to listen to this podcast. Again, please email us walking through the book at protonmail.com. And we encourage you to do so. If you find something in here that you disagree with or something you want to just talk about or comment on, uh, we want to encourage you to contact us on that basis. And we, we certainly stand ready to, uh, to answer your questions, to, to, to help you in any way in your seeking God. Uh, these are the greatest questions that we can ask. Who am I? Who is God? What does he want of me? Uh, what does he desire? And how can I be saved? Uh, very important thing for us to, th- things for us to think about and consider. But next time we're going to continue on and we're going to be looking at chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis. And so we encourage you to be a part of that as well. Until then, study well and be lights to his glory. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.